Sam is panning, sweaty and unstable as he whips his steering wheel wildly left and right. His car zips in and out of freeway traffic, past angry honkers. His police scanner chirps to life. All available units, suspect vehicles headed northbound on the 405. Repeat, northbound on the 405. Over. Sam eyes a 405 north sign up ahead. He spins his wheel, sending his vehicle across the freeway. An officer's voice crackles through the scanner. He looks from the road to the scanner and back. He slams on the gas, turns the steering wheel, and the car shoots down the next off-ramp. He turns onto a busy street, varying in and out of lanes. Occasionally, he jumps onto the sidewalk, honking his horn. Passers-by jump out of the way, screaming. He looks up at a passing sign, which reads 18th Street. Sam looks back to the road. Congestion of cars slows his pace. He veers the wheel to the right again, then back onto the sidewalk, where a sidewalk cafe sits. He honks as people leap away from their tables. His car smashes through the now empty tables before turning back onto the street once it's clear. Adam 10, vehicle now heading westbound on 16th Street. Sam passes a sign which reads 17th Street. A traffic light turns red. Sam notices just in time but speeds up anyway. Oncoming traffic nearly clips his car as he makes a beeline through the light. Screeches and car horns and crashes echo throughout the intersection as Sam turns left onto 17th Street. He continues weaving between lanes of traffic. He steals glances to his right, peering down random side streets, catching glimpses of the road parallel to his. He looks from the side streets back to the road ahead, barely making it through another light. A wail of sirens grow louder. Sam looks to the side streets again. He sees cop cars now, lights flashing in a huddled sprint, headed down the parallel street. Sam's gaze returns to the street ahead of him as he speeds up. He hears several tires screeches behind him and checks his rear view. In his mirror, the suspect's vehicle whips out of a side street and into Sam's view, barely missing surrounding traffic as he approaches from behind. Sam eases off the gas. Once the vehicle flies past his car, Sam slams on the gas again and takes off behind it. Every bob and weave the suspect's vehicle makes, Sam is right on its ass. The vehicle makes a screeching left into an alley. Sam bears his car down the alley after it. The homeless and drug dealers leap out of the way as the cars pass. His car inches closer and closer to the suspect's bumper as he steps on the gas. His car smashes into the suspect's rear bumper. The vehicle swerves for a few moments, slamming into the neighboring walls before regaining control. Sam slams into him again. The pit maneuver twists the suspect's car so it's stuck sideways between the alley walls, perpendicular to Sam's. Smoke billows from Sam's hood. In the suspect's vehicle, the van driver, who has hit his head is wavering in and out of consciousness. Rashonda Mickelson sits eerily calm in the passenger seat. Sam pushes for his car door to open, but it's pinned against the dumpster. He smashes his window with the butt of his gun and calls out. He limps toward the vehicle as if his left leg has been damaged. Gun held on the woozy driver. Don't move! Don't you move! Sirens grow louder. Sweaty through gritted teeth, Sam shakes with pain and barely contained rage. He stares down the sights of the gun, unsteady on his wounded leg. His sights shift slowly from the driver to Rashonda. Emotion slowly creeps into her face. A slight smile, one of pride, defiance, and vengeance. Police vehicles pour into the alley from both sides, screeching to a halt as they surround the scene. Several officers exit their cars, guns drawn, and take cover behind their doors. 
This is LBPD. Put your weapon down now. Drop your weapon now. Is he dead? Drop your weapon and get down on your knees. Is he dead? Put it down. Drop it now. Drop your weapon and get down on your knees. Put it down now. Drop it now. Put your weapon down now. Is he dead? Is he dead? Officer Pierce. Officer Samuel Pierce. Please hold your weapon. That is a direct order, officer. Is he dead? Hold your weapon, officer. The pause in the megaphone officer's voice gives Sam his answer. Officer Pierce. His eyes shut tightly against the pain. He lowers his gun. His eyes remain shut as surrounding officers approach him. Chapter 2 Who is he? A younger, clean-shaven Frank Cole kneels in a hallway in front of an apartment door. His voice is soothing and therapeutic as he speaks. I saved up for a year and a half. She said flashy gifts never impressed her. But who doesn't love a diamond ring? Got that ring and held on to it for six months. You know why? You know why, Murphy? The wounded, whimpering voice of Murphy is barely audible through the door. No. Because it was never the right time. Behind Frank, the hallway is lined on both sides with SWAT team members in full tactical gear. Some stand, others crouch, but all are focused on the door beside which Frank is kneeling, guns at the ready. Frank wears a regular suit minus tie with a Kevlar vest. A tactical headset is fitted over his head. In front of Frank, on the other side of the door, stands Commander Benson, a tall, imposing figure whose mind is on everything at once. I finally see my chance. Our first weekend getaway. And I see my moment. After dinner, just before dessert. I'm nervous as hell, brother. I wasn't sure if I could go through with it. The headset in Commander Benson's helmet comes to life. Atop a building across the street, a rooftop SWAT member, also wearing a headset, lies on his stomach with a sniper rifle in his hands, aimed and ready. He looks down the sights of the rifle, one eye closed. He focuses on the window of a nearby building. In that window, Murphy, a shaky, sweaty, bald man in his fifties, stumbles around in boxers, a tank top, and socks. As part of his body comes into view, the rooftop SWAT sees one of Murphy's hands hold a pistol. Commander Benson responds. The kid. Negative on the kid. Benson looks around him at the team waiting on his call before his eyes connect with Frank's. He gives Frank a look that says, what do you think? So then what? Oh, well, then I got down on one knee. Asked her for her hand in marriage. And she cried. And she cried. But it wasn't joy. It was regret that she led me down a road she didn't want to take. At least not with me. That's life, Murphy. And you pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and you get on with it. Come on, what do you say, Murphy? Silence. Frank flashes Benson a concerned look. The commander gestures for the two closest SWAT members, one armed with a battering ram, to flank both sides of the door. The rooftop SWAT tenses up as Murphy is now fully in view. A liquor bottle is held in his other hand. Full visual now, Commander. Suspects carrying in his free hand what appears to be a fist of Jim Beam. All parts of this balanced brain. 
Frank holds a hand up to the commander and he relays it to the two flanking SWAT members. You'd do anything for that kid, wouldn't you? Do it for him. That bitch was everything to me. You're wrong, Murphy. That kid is everything to you. A kid's voice is heard entering the room. Daddy. I told you, stay in the goddamn room. Frank and Commander Benson's concern grows. Frank makes a split-second call and gives the all-approving nod to Benson. The commander nods back. Take the shot. Simultaneously, Commander Benson gives the sign to the two closest SWAT members. The rooftop SWAT fires around. The bullet pierces the window and penetrates Murphy's shoulder. In the hallway, the battering ram SWAT member knocks down the door and his flank partner rushes in close behind, followed by the commander, Frank, and the rest of the team. In the apartment living room, Murphy lies screaming on the floor his kid crying hysterically by his side. Blood pours from Murphy's shoulder and the gun lies beside him. SWAT moves through the rest of the apartment. Frank pulls the kid away. The kid kicks and screams. Frank hands the kid off to another team member who pulls the kid out of the room. Benson yells to his team. We clear? All clear, sir. Great work. Great work, Frank. As the team mills about, Frank moves to the window which now sports a bullet-sized hole. He closes his eyes, breathes deep. We can tell the tension has gotten to him, but he keeps it all in. Frank watches the parking lot as a SWAT member carries the kid, kicking and screaming all the way. He stares at the sobbing child as he goes. In the downtown LA Federal Building, present day Frank, disheveled and scruffy bearded as usual, stands at the office doorway overlooking a patio. He watches Claudia, who paces the length of the patio on her cell. I'm having some former enlisted members reach out to you. They'll secure the perimeter and... This nut job just murdered a cop in cold blood in front of the world. Who gives a shit what Joe thinks? This is our family and... Can I speak to Emma? No. Don't wake her. I'll see her tomorrow. Claudia notices Frank. I'll call you later. She puts her phone away as Frank joins her on the patio. Got kids? Just the one. Emma. She's my little bean. How old? Six. No. Seven. You sure? I've been gone a minute. Anyone you need to call? Probably. What's this guy want with us anyway? It's what these geniuses put us together for, right? To figure it out. Now what? One's MIA, another's shaking in the corner like a crackhead. Claudia nods in the direction of a fidgety Martin, looking worriedly at his phone as he exits the office. He'll come around. That snide little prick wouldn't fart without consulting his lawyer. We're gonna have to come at him a different way. Claudia rises and heads off in the direction Martin walked. Easy. You don't want to make things worse. Do I seem like the type who would make things worse? Frank isn't sure how to take that as he watches her go. In the federal building office, Martin pants hysterically, his legs taking him in every direction at once, until frozen in place by a vibration in his pocket. He reaches in it and withdraws his vibrating phone. Judging from his terrified reaction, the name on the display is an unwelcome one. Martin's eyes dart between Orson and Brubaker in the corner having a discussion and Frank and Claudia conversing on the patio just outside. As all are distracted, 
he slips out of the room. Martin enters the bathroom, flicks on the light, and locks the door behind him as he speaks into his phone. Hello? Are we going to have a problem, Marty? No. No problem. What have you told them? Nothing. I haven't said anything. Then why did 40 officers just surround my goddamn warehouse? Martin's eyes go wide. The warehouse is his? Ours. I didn't know that. I don't know anything. Well, you better find out who does, Marty. Your family's lives depend on it. The mysterious woman hangs up. Martin regains his composure. He exits the bathroom and runs right into Claudia. Hey! Jeez. Martin, right? Claudia. Yes, hello. This is some shit, huh? What do you think is going on? I don't know anything about this. I didn't ask what you know. I asked what you think. Any idea who this guy could be? My legal representation has directed me not to speak right, on this. Right, right, right. But the thing is, I don't know if you've been watching the news lately, but some guy's face was just blown off on national TV, and we don't know who's next. If we know something that could stop him, we have to stop him. You have a family, don't you? Excuse me. He starts down the hallway, but Claudia blocks him. Did you know I'm a Marine? Served two tours in Afghanistan. You ever kill anyone? Martin grows concerned as he shakes his head. One moment. You couldn't possibly end someone's life. The next, you have to give yourself reasons not to. Is this a threat? (laughs) No, Martin. We're just getting to know each other. Claudia steps aside. Martin passes, delicately. Whose warehouse was it? Martin stops in place and turns back giving her a brief but incriminating look before continuing off. Claudia watches him disappear. She's got his number. Frank sits on the patio bench looking at his phone. Its display reveals a text from Nora. He opens the message and reads. Hints of a smile creep into his face. The patio door opens, pulling him back into the world. He looks in its direction and finds Captain Orson leaning out the doorway. Hey, kid. We're back. Frank pockets his phone, leaves the bench, and heads in Orson's direction. Frank, Claudia, and Martin join Orson in front of the monitor. FBI agent Brubaker lingers behind them. On the monitor plays police body cam footage of Officer Guzman, who converses with the person wearing the body cam. That person is Officer Sam Pierce. Twins. A twofer? Way to go, Guzman. Sure, this is me, grateful. Sam gestures behind Guzman at Officer Mac Devlin and Officer Pope, questioning Josiah Mickelson. It's my mother. I don't care if it's God himself. Get out of the car. What's this about? Probably found a crack pipe or something. Hey, you think kids are so great? I'll own you one or mine. You wouldn't last an hour. My kids are a horror show. Look who's raising them. Wait, what did I do? I'm not going to tell you again to calm down. You're resisting, that's what you're doing. What the hell? 
Body cam footage jolts forward as if Sam is attempting to run toward the scene, but is halted in place by Guzman. Relax. The boys are just having a little fun. You gonna cooperate? Answer me. Guzman's face is drained as he stares at Sam, realizing what they just allowed to happen. His eyes look to Sam's body cam and he reaches for it. Turn that shit off. As Guzman's hand grips the body cam, his hand engulfs the frame and the image shakes before the monitor goes black, replaced with the familiar audio wave. For evil to succeed, all good men have to do is nothing. Congratulations, Officer Pierce. Congratulations for doing nothing. An officer opens the office door, peers in, and nods toward Captain Orson. Orson scrunches his face, concerned, and rushes over to meet the officer at the door. Soon, the world will learn how powerful just one of us can be. Frank, Claudia, Martin. Your days of freedom are numbered. <laughs> Until next time. The monitor goes black. Next time? What the hell does he think this is? <laughs> I ain't staying here all night. Orson hurries back across the room. Just got an anonymous tip. Brubaker shoots him a look. On what? The first nuke. A swarm of squad cars, SWAT vans, bomb squad units, and fire engines rush through the city in formation, blowing through intersections with lights and sirens whirring along the way. Frank, Claudia, Orson, and Brubaker watch from a bomb disposal tech's body cam. Martin half watches as he fixes himself to leave. The swarm pulls up to and surrounds a nondescript office building. The disposal tech's camera gives a full clear view of the office building as she approaches it. Officers usher out the building occupants as the bomb squad rushes in. Claudia's jaw drops ever so slowly at the sight of the building, as if she recognizes it. The bomb squad enters the building and marches up the stairs as a team member's voice crackles through the disposal tech's walkie-talkie. The squad reaches the third level and opens a door. Once in the hallway, the bomb squad assists with fitting the disposal tech into her blast suit. The squad vacates the hallway, leaving the disposal tech to herself. She kneels down and removes a floor vent. Inside the vent sits a cylindrical metal object. Mini flashlight in hand, the disposal tech checks around the object's sides. Finding nothing attached, she lifts the case from the vent with delicate precision. Accessing internals? The disposal tech removes the casing to reveal a metal tube, orange and blue wires leading out of each side. The tech takes a pair of side cutters and grips the blue wire. She takes a beat to herself, then snips it. She breathes a momentary sigh of relief as the side cutters switch hands. She wraps her cutters around the blue wire on the opposite side with equal precision, grips it, takes a beat to herself, and snips. Nothing. She breathes a final, deeper sigh. Clear. Who's buying? Her squad is heard cheering in her headphones. The transmission ends. In the federal office building, Frank, Claudia, Orson, and Brubaker share her relief. Even Martin, still lingering, transfixed on the moment, is visibly relieved. He nevertheless makes his way to the door. Well, I guess that's that then. 
Sorry, I couldn't be of more assistance. Guess now we wait for the next shoe to drop, huh? Going forward, I would appreciate if you reach out to my legal representation for further assistance. We get it on right. Okay, matter. Jesus. Martin exits. Where was the driver taken? He's the only lead we've got. Long Beach PD on Broadway. Same as the mother. I'm heading to Long Beach Memorial check-in on Officer Pierce. I'll drop you on the way. No need. I'll manage. Brubaker withdraws his phone and heads out the door. Orson calls after him. I'll circle back there when I'm done. That won't be necessary, Captain. The Bureau will take it from here. Brubaker raises his phone to his ear as he hurries out. Orson shares an excuse-me look with Claudia and Frank. The Bureau. What can I say? It was worth a shot. The moment this loon resurfaces, we'll be in touch. You kids need a ride? I'm fine. Claudia gestures so long and goes, I could use a lift to Norris. Orson brightens up upon hearing her name. Yeah? I like the sound of that. Frank forces a smile as Orson pats him on the back. Frank rides shotgun, watching the world pass. Orson drives, taking a casual peek in Frank's direction. It's not that I wasn't concerned about you, Frank. I've never been good at that stuff. Consoling. I didn't know how to help. I get that. That's what makes you so good at your job, you know? Your empathy. The world could use that now. Don't make me walk from here. <laughs> okay, alright, I'll back off. Orson's car pulls to a stop in front of a two-story home. Lights illuminating the walkway towards the door, and flowers along each side make it feel at once homely and desolate. Orson places a hand on Frank's shoulder. Hey kid, whatever this voice has in mind for you, once this is over, you say the word and you're disappeared, you hear me? You got my word on that. Maybe I have it coming. Orson is perplexed, but thinks better of pursuing it. Give Nora my best. Frank smiles and gets out of the car. Orson pulls off as Frank walks the lit sidewalk. He approaches the door and rings the bell. The sound carries with it bittersweet nostalgia as a memory comes flooding back. The door swings open and Zoe Cole, four years old, sad and teary-eyed, runs and jumps into Frank's arms. Frank is now the younger, clean-cut Frank, who wears a police shield in his suit jacket. A younger, stern Nora Cole sits at a dining room table nearby, glasses on her nose, tapping away at a laptop. Daddy! Daddy! Whoa! What's wrong, sweetie? Mommy's being mean. What did Mommy ask you to do? Zoe? Pick up my toys. And did you? Zoe shakes her head. Aha. Uh -huh. I think I'd solved the problem. Why don't you go pick up your toys, and when you come back, like magic, mean Mommy, we'll turn back into Huggy Kissy Mommy just like that. Okay? She nods, and Frank puts her down. All right, go on. Zoe runs up the stairs. Frank crosses to Nora, rubs her shoulders, and kisses her head. She smiles and closes her eyes, transported from work, if only briefly. Mmm. Were we this fussy as kids? Probably. Frank pulls up a seat beside her, pulls her feet into his lap, and rubs them. Mmm. That's some pampering for a Wednesday. Nora looks into Frank's eyes, notices something heavy weighing on him. What are you running from up there? Frank smiles and focuses on the massage. 
You want to talk? He shakes his head. Well, talk to someone. Finally, Frank raises his eyes to meet hers. The door opens for real this time, and present-day Frank now stands at the door. Present-day Nora opens it and offers him a pleasant, if difficult, smile. Hey. Frank returns an equally difficult one. At Long Beach Memorial, Sam lies in a hospital bed in a gown, his left leg encased in an orthopedic cast from the knee down. Orson stands by Sam's bedside, taking notes. A tense, brooding Officer Pope lingers by the door behind him, looking on with skepticism. Get a good look? Oh, yeah. Ever see him before? I don't think so. We ID him yet? Any minute. Brubaker's on his way now. Sam, did you ever have any contact with the mom or her son prior to the traffic stop? The father. Yeah, this race-baiting prick lawyer, Armstrong Nicholson. Orson briefly glances behind him in Pope's direction, then back to Sam. What's that about? I think Mac had a history with the guy. Whatever it was, it was probably frivolous. Army is just a civil rights show. Always has been. Hey, Pope. Why don't you give us a minute? Why? So you can throw another one of us under the bus? The hell does that mean? Just wondering which one of us is next. Me? Guzman? Who? You think I killed my own partner? I don't know whose side you're on. Fuck you. He was my friend. But this voice is protecting me. I put my ass on the line. Not us. Every night just like you. You're nothing like us. Knock it off. Orson steps to Pope's face, deadly serious. Officer, this country is under a terrorist attack and we need answers. If you continue impeding this investigation and thousands lose their lives as a result, I'll do everything in my power to make sure you are penalized to the fullest extent of the law. Is that understood? Are we clear? Yes, sir. Disgusted with both of them, Pope exits the room, slamming the door behind him. Orson and Sam breathe a collective sigh as the tension dissipates. Orson pulls up a nearby chair and sits by Sam. They said they were just scaring the kid. I didn't know. Mac was part of a drug bust at a residence on Crenshaw a few years back. Turned out to be the wrong house. An infant was shot and killed. I remember that. Yeah? Well, Mac was the shooter. Apparently, Mickelson's prosecution led to all sorts of litigation against the precinct that still echoes today. The door opens and Mac's widower, Cheryl, enters holding herself together, but barely. Sam leans into Orson's ear. Mac's wife. Orson nods, understanding. Get some rest, Sam. He pats Sam on the shoulder, rises from the chair, and nods a condolence to Cheryl as he goes. Cheryl runs to Sam's bedside and collapses into his arms. Sam? Oh, God, Sam! Not Mac! Sam sobs with her as the door closes. At the Long Beach Police Department, a black tinted windowed car pulls up to the security gate. A guard steps out of the security booth as the driver's window rolls down, revealing Agent Brubaker. He flashes his badge. Special Agent Brubaker for Lieutenant Dorsey, CIS Division. The guard nods and retracts into the booth. A moment later, the gate raises and Brubaker drives through. Lieutenant Dorsey, mid-40s and all business, leads Brubaker down the precinct hallway, both moving at a brisk pace and dodging between co-workers. 
Brubaker peruses a folder full of papers as she speaks. Name's Harrison Gailey, 52, steel factory worker. Served two years in federal correctional for petty theft. Four years in the military before that. No other priors? None. And no ties to any known terror cells, so far. They approach an interrogation room and enter on the darkened side of the reflective window. On the other side, cuffed to a table, sits Harrison Gailey, a.k.a. the van driver. Brubaker glares long and hard at him. I'll keep digging. We're on it. I'll have security escort you in. No need. This is a confidential interrogation. Understood. Lieutenant Dorsey moves off as Brubaker's eyes linger on Gailey. Gailey sits patiently in his chair, quiet and reserved. Brubaker enters with two cups of water, places one in front of Gailey and one in front of an empty chair where he takes a seat. Got anything stronger? I do. A nice metal chair. Comes with about 1,700 volts. Not sure you survived the hangover, though. So, who are you? Surely you've done your homework by now. I'm not interested in this. Brubaker holds up the folder before dropping it onto the table. I want to hear it in your words. Who I am is insignificant. My actions are what define me. <laughs> that from a fortune cookie or a self-help book? It's from a place of enlightenment. A hippie terrorist, huh? That's new. You think I'm a terrorist? At the very least, I think you're an accomplice to murder. At the very least? We all are. Tell me about your leader. He's not my leader. He's my friend. You help friends commit murder often? I don't have friends often. He's running free? You're in here. You're not his friend. You're his Patsy. Gailey regards Brubaker with pity. It's a testament to your character that you mistake sacrifice for weakness. You want to be in prison? This is temporary. Really? Gailey leans in, points to his and Brubaker's white skin. This system isn't built to punish people like us. Where does that leave the kid's mother? She's facing life. She will be walking out of here, right along with me. How's that? Now, if I told you the whole plan, what fun would it be? Agent Brubaker. Brubaker is taken aback by the mention of his name. Gailey smiles at his confoundment. The door to a trailer home opens and Squeak steps in. Before he even turns on the lights in the pitch black trailer, Squeak heads straight for the fridge, retrieves a beer, and pops open the can. He takes a big gulp and exhales, eyes closed in contentment. You should lock your door. Ah! Squeak drops the beer and it sprays all over the floor. Claudia lounges at a table like she lives there. Jesus, Claudia. I will now. He grabs a towel and begins to clean up. How'd the voice know I saw you at the shop? You choked me out in public, Claudia. Everybody knew. Catch that televised execution? Till they cut away, yeah. Squeak grabs another beer, opens it, and sits across from Claudia. As soon as he does, she takes the beer out of his hand and chugs it. Squeak sighs and goes back to the fridge for another, then returns to his seat. It went down in front of a deserted warehouse in Long Beach on Anaheim. Okay. The place is dirty. I need to know who owns it. Sounds like no one does. I'll look into it. Are we done? 
Claudia's mood goes grave. Squeak knows that look. We're not done. The building they found the nuke in? It's a government black site. It's where they detain persons of interest, who they deem a threat. Off the books. I don't think the others know. Not even the agent. You didn't tell them? The government sold nuclear arms to terrorists by mistake, Squeak. They're the reason we're in this shit. Forgive me if I'm a little skeptical. How do you know it's a black site? Her eyes go distant for a moment. Let's just say I was a visitor. Why plant it there? <sighs> right. I'll look into it. Claudia holds up her beer. Cheers. Yeah, whatever. He cheers begrudgingly. Frank peruses Nora's living room shelf, admiring her teaching certificates and trophies. Nora sits at the dining room table nearby, which is littered with remnants of a takeout dinner, finishing off dessert. Teacher of the year. Finalist, huh? <laughs> this close. It was between myself and Rita Juarez, sweet old lady on the verge of retirement. But I'm not bitter. Of course not. That's why you recall her full name. <laughs> Personally, I think she played up the age card. Ah, the old reverse ageism. You may be on to something. <laughs> why didn't you tell me? Huh, we weren't in the best place then. Frank faces her and they take each other in for a moment. I'm sorry. You'll never have to be sorry. They share a silence before Nora busies herself, gathering dishes from the table and slipping into the kitchen. I ran into Elias the other day. Frank has a peculiar reaction to that name as he moves to a couch and takes a seat. Nora returns briefly for more dishes. Huh. That's random. How is he? Putting himself back together, just like us. Has his good and his bad days, just like us. She disappears into the kitchen again. I look forward to a day when we can interact without him feeling compelled to apologize. Frank makes a pained expression until she returns, drying her hands and taking a seat beside him. He wraps an arm around her and she leans her head on his shoulder. He asked about you. Have you spoken since? We had some words after the hearing. Haven't spoken to anyone, really. Just you. <laughs> you try to, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, do I. He kisses the top of her head, and her eyes close. I miss this. I miss it more. <laughs> Can we stay like this? Just like this. Frank kisses her head again, and she wraps her arms around him. Martin's car pulls to a stop in front of his house, and he gets out stealthily. He takes a long, hard look around the yard. He rears his head to inspect the roof. Peers behind him across the street. He tiptoes up to the door, unlocks it, and enters as delicately as he can. Angelo watches a news broadcast, the living room lights dimmed. Martin tiptoes past her and up the staircase. She looks after him oddly, then returns her attention to the TV. On the TV, a black interviewee is on the street speaking to news reporter Patty Durham. It's sad, but 
At the end of the day, how much more can we take? Are you saying you support vigilantism? I'm saying, give us another option. Martin peeks into his son Miles' bedroom, looks around. Miles lies in bed fast asleep. Ever so gently, Martin makes his way across the room to Miles' closet, which sits slightly ajar. He looks around the room and grabs a baseball bat. With his other hand, he reaches slowly for the closet door, whips it open, and raises the bat in preparation. The closet is empty. Martin is relieved. Martin sneaks back down the stairs and passes Angela again as he searches other rooms in the house. Well, there you have it. Some emotional reactions to this mystery voice and this horrible officer-involved tragedy from a wounded community whose temperature has reached its boiling point. This is Patty Durham for CHTV. She registers Martin's odd behavior and turns down the TV as he returns to the living room and sits beside her. What you doing? Listen to me. I want you to pack a few things and take Miles to your father's. Do you understand? What for? I'll explain everything later. Please, just do this for me. Martin gets her up with him and moves her toward the stairs. Is this a pug dad voice? Why did you smash your computer? Oh, I, uh, had a virus. A virus? Please, just go. Marty, stop it. You've been acting like a maniac lately and you're not telling me anything. Why are we whispering? What's going on? Okay, okay, okay. You know the clients whose investments I manage? Yes. Okay, well, like that, only with guns. Please, let's go. Angela ascends the stairs in frustration, with Martin close behind. In their bedroom, Angela pulls a suitcase from a closet shelf and tosses it onto a bed. She pulls dresser drawers open and tosses clothing into it. Martin stands over Miles' bed and shakes him awake. Miles? Miles, hey, buddy, come on, get up. We're gonna go for a little trip, okay? Miles sits up, rubbing his eyes. All three make their way outside to the car. Martin struggles with three suitcases as he reaches the car trunk. Angela hurries close behind with a carry-on over one shoulder and Miles in her arms. She places him in his car seat as Martin shuts the trunk and jumps behind the wheel. As Martin drives, Angela stews in the passenger seat looking out the window in a foul mood. I swear when this is over, I'll tell you everything. And when will that be? Soon. How will I know it's the truth? It's like I don't know who you are anymore. I haven't changed. I'm still me. Whoever that is. Martin's car pulls up the curved driveway of a lavish mansion. Angela gets out with the carry-on and retrieves Miles from the back seat. Martin grabs the suitcases from the trunk and they meet at the front door. Angela rings the doorbell. The door opens and Mr. Han, 60s, gray-bearded and clearly irritated at being awakened this late, opens the door. Hi, Daddy. I'm so sorry. He hugs and kisses his daughter and lets her and Miles pass through. Martin places the suitcases on the inside of the door and steps back out. Mr. Han looks him up and down with disappointment. Good evening, Mr. Hun. Sir? I cannot thank you enough. This is just temporary. Things will be back to normal in no time. Mr. Hun slams the door on Martin mid-sentence. That went better than I expected. He heads back to the car. In the interrogation room, Gailey finishes his cup of water. Brubaker studies him. How do you know my name? 
What was it like, Agent? Sifting through the rubble of that rickety old shack, searching for a body you'd never find? I knew it'd be a matter of time. Did you? Lackeys like you get thrown to the wolves eventually. If we live through this, Agent Brubaker. I hope you realize that you're on the wrong side. Brubaker grows concerned. Live through what? Gailey makes a gesture to indicate locking his mouth and throwing away the key. Live through what? I think I should leave the rest to my court-appointed attorney. Hmm. Thank you for the beverage, Agent Brubaker. When I get out, I'll tell my friends you said hi. Oh, don't bother. I'll see him soon. Brubaker smiles as he rises and crosses to the door, knocking on it to get the guard's attention. Two guards enter, unlock Gailey's cuffs from the table, and flank him as they escort him out. Oh, Gailey? Gailey and the guard stop and turn. In case we don't live through this, I'll see you in hell. Gailey grins from ear to ear as he's led away. On a rainy night, just off the freeway in a heavily wooded area, a pile of twisted metal and shattered glass is all that's left of a car that lies on its side, twisted against a tree in the woods. Frank approaches, slowly and precariously. A stream of blood runs down the side of his face. A person shouts in the distance. Are you okay? Is everyone okay? Frank reaches the car and looks over the smashed out windows. In the back is an empty car seat. Daddy. Frank turns and sees Zoe beside him, bruised and bloodied, with an unnervingly serene expression. <laughs> Frank awakens from the nightmare, leaping from Nora's arms and waking her from her sleep. Oh God, no! Hey, oh hey, God. hey, hey! Oh God! Oh it's okay. My God. It's okay. Oh God, I'm so sorry. Shh. I'm so sorry. Shh. I'm here. I'm oh here. God! No. Oh my God! I'm so sorry. Hey, I'm look sorry. at me. Oh. Look at me. He slowly calms down and looks into her eyes as she strokes his face. Her calm brings him back to his senses. It's all right. It's all right, baby. They share a kiss, then another. It continues with a deepening passion as they fall back into each other's arms. Back in his driveway, Martin sits in his car, looking down at his phone, worried and drained, his face tear-stained. On his phone plays a grainy video taken from inside Miles' closet. The camera zooms in on Miles' face as he sleeps. Before zooming back out and cutting the black, Martin tears his eyes away from the screen and looks helplessly at the sky. At Long Beach Memorial, a pretty RN pushes Sam in a wheelchair out the door into the curb where a car awaits. A walking cane lays across his lap. I got a prescription for Vicodin and a two-week medical leave. Up for a little happy hour tonight. It's a federal and state violation to share prescription drugs, officer. Now that is a horrible bedside manner. But bonus points for professionalism. A driver exits the car and helps Sam out of the wheelchair and into the back. Do I need to be worried about you? I'll be a good boy. I could use some registered nursing, though. The RN shakes her head playfully. Take good care of yourself, Officer Pierce. The driver places him in the back and shuts the door as the RN and her wheelchair go back inside. In a public aquarium, 
Claudia holds a child-sized stuffed bunny in her lap as she sits on a bench in the middle of the room. Her parole officer, Joe, enters and approaches Claudia from behind. Hello, Claudia. Claudia turns to her and rises as her eyes scan the crowd. Where's Emma? I requested that your visitation privileges be temporarily suspended. Claudia's rage slowly starts to boil. I don't think I heard you right. Your current situation poses an unknown risk to your child, and as your parole officer, it is my duty to ensure you're no longer a threat to yourself or others. Oh, bullshit, Joe. Claudia. Claudia shakes her head and walks away from Joe. You've been up my ass since the moment I got out. You've been looking for an excuse. I don't have to look far. You're not permitted to carry a firearm or anything resembling one. Yet, I tracked you to a gun range not 24 hours after your monitors removed, Claudia. That alone could get you sent back. I'm not supposed to protect my family? You aren't prepared to protect anyone. Joe approaches Claudia, who lingers at a window of passing marine life. What do you want from me? Let this pass. Once you get through this, and the threat has been neutralized, I'll see to it that your visitation rights are reinstated. And then you'll start trusting me? Joe regards Claudia with disbelief. You want to talk about trust? All right. Where's the body, Claudia? Where's the body, Claudia? An entire history passes before Claudia's eyes, which carry a hint of pleading, but she remains silent. Joe straightens up and studies her as she prepares to leave. Hmm. Well, maybe this voice will have something to say about that. In the meantime, try and stay out of trouble. Joe starts to walk away, then stops and turns back. Shall I? She gestures to the stuffed bunny in Claudia's arms. Claudia looks at the bunny. After a moment, she reluctantly raises the bunny out to Joe. Joe takes it and goes, leaving Claudia to her disappointment. Sam sits on his apartment couch watching the news. On the screen, Mac Devlin's officer photo flashes by, as well as photos of him with his three kids being awarded at a police function and getting married to Cheryl. Sam turns the TV off, deep in thought. He grabs his cane and pushes himself off the couch. He hobbles to his bathroom sink, turns the faucet on and looks at himself in the mirror. He places the cane to the side and lowers his head into the sink. Behind him, his shower curtain is slowly pulled open by a gloved hand. Sam splashes water on his face. His head raises from the sink and he takes a deep, relaxing breath. (sighs) A figure in full black attire and ski mask grabs Sam from behind and smashes his head against the mirror, cracking it. Sam pushes back and they both tumble to the floor. Sam elbows the figure twice in the face. It breaks the figure's grip long enough to crawl to the shower curtain. As Sam grabs onto the curtain and pulls himself up, the figure pulls Sam back toward him, and the curtain is torn from its rungs as they both fall back to the floor. Sam takes the curtain, wraps the figure's head in it, and slams his head into the floor. Sam proceeds to attempt suffocating the figure, but the figure pushes him off. The figure removes the curtain from his face, grabs Sam's cane, and pins Sam's neck against the wall with it. Sam gasps for air as the figure leans into his ear. This is what it's like to be on the other side. How does it feel? The figure presses the cane into Sam's neck a few moments longer to drive the point home before dropping the cane and running out. Sam lingers on the ground, 
Regaining control of his breathing and clutching his leg, blood begins to stream down from a forehead laceration. With all the energy he can muster, Sam lets out a rageful yell. At the Long Beach Police Department, a correctional officer approaches a holding cell. In it, Gailey lies on a bench facing the wall. The CO grabs his keys and unlocks the door. Wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. Let's go, pal. Your attorney's here to see you. Not that you deserve one. The CO stands at the open door. Gailey doesn't budge. CO moves over to him. Hey, Gailey. With his baton, the CO pokes Gailey a couple times. Still no movement. The CO rolls Gailey over towards him and finds his face pale, his eyes wide in a permanent state of shock. The CO presses his fingers against Gailey's neck. No pulse. Shit. The CO rushes out of the cell as he shouts into the mic adorning his shoulder. We got a 1054 and 103. I need a medic, stat. This is an emergency. I repeat, this is an emergency. We got a 1054 and cell 103. The CO rushes off, leaving Gailey's lifeless body and alarms echoing throughout the building in his wake. In a hotel room, Brubaker's eyes are glued to the TV while he buttons his shirt and ties his tie. On the TV, the front entrance of the Long Beach Police Department is overrun with police, cameras, and reporters as we hear the voice of a news anchor. We have breaking news this morning out of Long Beach, California. The driver arrested in connection with the murder of an LAPD officer last night was discovered dead mere hours ago while in police custody. Our very own Patty Durham is at the scene. Patty? The broadcast cuts to a shot of Patty Durham, who stands in front of the chaos, microphone in hand. Brubaker finishes tying the knot. The longer he watches the broadcast, the bigger his smug grin grows. Authorities say the driver, real name Harrison Gailey, was found unresponsive in his cell in the early morning hours here at Long Beach PD. Cause of death is still unknown. However, the chief of police is expected to give a press conference with further updates later this afternoon. Brubaker slips his suit jacket on. He couldn't be more pleased with himself. He calls out to the voice, wherever he is. Your move, asshole. That concludes Chapter 2 of No Other Way. I am its creator, James Dinkins. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, please feel free to donate to our production at paypal.me slash dinkinsfilm. That's paypal.me slash d-i-n-k-i-n-s-f-i-l-m. And be sure to follow us on social media at No Other Way Pod. That's No Other Way P-O-D. Thank you for listening.